Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Rawl, founder and CEO of Knapsack, a modern design system platform that's raised over $7 million in funding. Chris, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so I spent a lot of my early career doing big enterprise software. So stuff like SAP and G and things like that, and pretty quickly realized that I wasn't really cut out for a big corporate world. I was much better at operating in this sort of in more agile space with smaller companies. And I started my first company called Orchestra Software that actually, funny enough, I saw it got acquired like, a, I think a year and a half ago and still sort of existed in some form today with a couple of friends. So from that experience, I was hooked. I went from there to another startup called Acquia over in Boston, got to report directly to the founder and got to kind of watch the inside of a mid-stage startup I think we just raised our Series A when I joined, grow from a pretty small, tight team to a really big company doing lots of revenue. And I got to watch that from the inside. And that was this moment where I was like, oh, man, I want to do that. I want to have a venture-backed startup and I want to do something that's like a big, like change the world idea and really make a go of it. And it's hard when you're like the operations guy. I've always kind of been the person that was really good at building the business and much less the idea guy. And so I went and joined an agency for a while to kind of get exposed to a bunch of ideas. The great thing about agencies is you end up with just a plethora of customers and ideas and interactions. And so I got to meet the person that became my co-founder there, a guy named Evan Lovely. And it was actually funny. I was taking a break from work. I just left the agency and Evan cornered me on a ski lift and basically said, hey, that thing that, that we built in an agency at one point, you know, I think that it could change the way that, that we build the future of the internet. And so maybe we should start a company that does that. And so, so that's how we got into design systems and started thinking about building this business. Nice. And what kind of agency was that? And how big was the agency? So I joined a, an agency called Phase Two. It was a mid-sized agency that operates out of DC. They did a lot of really big projects. I mean, they worked with uh, folks like the United Nations and the NBA. And so I got to be exposed to a lot of like really big enterprise companies. And then when Evan and I got together, we had a third co-founder, Nam, and we all built an agency that was all about design systems. And so when I was at that agency phase two, we got exposed to a lot of these concepts, this idea that, you know, you should build an abstract pattern that you then reuse across multiple different web properties. NBA is a great example. You have a couple dozen team sites. Those team sites are largely the same. Why would you rebuild all of the UI bits for every single one of those teams when you could build it centrally as kind of an abstraction and then implement it using variables across all those different sites? Got it. That makes sense. And a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader. Uh, what CEO are you studying the most right now? And it can't be Elon Musk and it can't be uh, SPF. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. What? <laughs> What a time to be in tech. Yeah, I actually I had the opportunity to be in a, a session with uh, Melanie Perkins about a year ago on the CEO Canva. Mm -hmm. And listening to her talk about the pathways that they built inside of their application. I mean, first of all, they're a, another organization that's kind of in our space, right? Like they're a part of the design landscape. I think it's really cool that their story is about democratization. It's very much about our story as well. And so it's just somebody that I really look at as a model for how I think about how our business should grow up. 
Nice. And they're huge, right? Wasn't their most recent valuation camera was like 20 billion or something insane? Yeah, I mean, I, like it keeps getting bigger. I think the 26 billion, I think, was the last time. I don't know. It was tremendous. It's been pretty incredible to see what Melody's built. Wow, that's amazing. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a huge impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book or it can be just even a personal book. Yeah, I mean, it's going to sound really cliche, but Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things was pretty impactful for me as a founder. You know, you never really quite know what sitting in the chair feels like. I think that I had some idea what it was going to look like being a co-founder previously, but not a CEO, and then being part of a, a venture-backed startup. But you don't actually really know. And I'm also like a huge hip-hop fan. And so, you know, it, it's funny because it actually like is a little weird in the book. It's almost jarring when you read like all these hip hop phrases at the start of every chapter. But at the same time, I listened to those albums when I was growing up. And so I sort of relate to it. Nice. I think I'm going to have to ban that book going forward as well, because I would say 70% of people also list that as their favorite book. So I had to had to say no more Musk, but I think I'm gonna have to call it with that book as well. Yeah, it's sort of funny, right? I guess like if I had to pick a second I mean, it was required reading at a company, so I don't know if it necessarily is like that meaningful. But The Lean Startup, that's another fairly cliche one. Bruce's book from Wildcat Ventures. He's not there anymore, though. What the heck was the name of that book? I don't remember it off the top of my head. And then Startup CEO, the Techstars one that, that Matt Bloomberg wrote. I actually have that on my desk. Nice. And do you consider yourself a wartime CEO right now? I mean, I think that... <laughs> I think that everyone kind of is at the moment, right? Like the macros are all over the place. And so nobody really knows what's going on in the market right now. You have all this venture capital that's like locked up where all these VC firms raise these huge commitments, these huge future commitments from their LPs. And then all of a sudden, like liquidity, the market disappeared because there's so few exits right now. And so you have all these different VC firms that are, are committed on these funds with these LPs that honestly, aren't sitting on a lot of cash. And so obviously, like we hope to continue down the venture track and raise more money in the coming years and everything like that. But it's a really hard time to raise right now if you're out there, especially in a growth stage round, trying to make something happen. Yeah, totally. I think that's consistent across you know all the founders that I speak to on the podcast. And I don't think anyone would say that they're at peacetime right now, or I wonder what business would say that. Yeah, I mean, we're in an interesting spot with our business, right? Because we're all about kind of changing the way that people work, changing the way that people think about building products. And so that sort of change in an uncertain economic environment, you have to have a real strong like ROI story for that right now. And that ROI story can't be about like, hey, let's go spend all this money to go do this new digital transformation project in the time that, you know, everybody's so uncertain. And so like what's good for us is we raised earlier this year. So time's on our side, but it's definitely a weird environment. Yeah. Makes sense. And let's uh, let's dive deeper into Knapsack now. So can you give us a high-level pitch of what you do and you know, what is that problem that customers are paying you to solve? Yeah, so when we were an agency, my co-founder and I, we always ran into this problem where you would end up rebuilding things over and over and over again, oftentimes inside of the same company and sometimes inside of the same app in the same company. And so if you're doing like a large enterprise web build, you usually have like a design team and an engineering team. And there's like some product manager that is there that usually owns that product production process. And so designers create a bunch of designs and they're taking nothing and making it into something. And then they pass those designs over to engineers. And those engineers look at those designs and go, well, I can't build that. Or like, that doesn't make any sense. But oftentimes, those design and engineering teams have, have very little interaction and overlap. And so you end up with engineers that are frustrated by the lack of fidelity 
that comes out of design tools like Figma or Adobe XD or Sketch. And they have to make a bunch of design decisions sort of on the fly. And then the work that they produce and the code that ultimately ends up in production, the designers look at that on review and they say, that isn't what I designed. What the heck is that? And the problem is, is that all these design decisions sort of had to be made in a vacuum and it modified that end experience that the designer had intended. And so there's this gap between intent and reality that is this really hard problem that has been very difficult to solve for a really long time. And it oftentimes results in this sort of like devilish tennis match of finger pointing blame and design reviews between these different teams. And one of the things that, that we thought of with Knapsack is what if you put a piece of software in the middle of that, that was all about collaboration, not towards the creation of the end product, but towards the codified building blocks of that product. So behind me on a sign, I have a thing that says build using patterns. Well, what a pattern simply is, is it's a, a solution to a commonly recurring problem. One really commonly recurring problem in design and engineering is like, what color is my primary color? Well, that can be in a lot of different places in design. It can be in a lot of different places in code. What Knapsack intends to do is create that one place that you go to to understand your primary color. And this takes the form of a workspace that does kind of four things. It looks at how do I organize my design assets in the same way that my code is organized? How do I create a set of documentation that automatically updates when I change either design or code? How do I connect to my code in a way that is real-time and live that allows me to know exactly what is going into production? And then how do I actually take all that code, manage it in a workflow, and package it in such a way I can actually ship it into an application? This kind of does a few things. It makes design more consistent, allows for a consistent application of brand. It saves you a bunch of time and effort because nobody has to search for design underscore final underscore final two underscore really final this time. And then engineers don't have to make a bunch of boneheaded design decisions with an eyedropper tool when they can't figure out what the primary color is. And then lastly, it really sort of creates this environment where we can start to care about things like accessibility and like performance trade-offs, like visual regression testing, and allow those things to really come to the fore of the design and engineering collaboration instead of fighting over like, you know, how many pixels left or right a button should be in a page. Interesting. And is a design system platform an established category? You know, does that already have a line item that companies are going out and looking for? Or is this, you know, a new line item that you're really pushing and encouraging them to create? Yeah, I mean, it's really a new line item. Like some people usually have some semblance of this right now. We figured out uh, you know, about 15, 20 years ago in the engineering side, that you can't just scale with people. You have to scale with systems. Mm-hmm. Design is living that reality right now, where, you know, my hot take on design is that 75% of what we consider production design jobs today aren't going to exist in five years. Because we're realizing that if you hire a thousand designers, the coordination of the effort between those designers is actually the problem. You can't make those people work together efficiently. And so you have to start to think about like using systems instead of people. And so what's happening in the landscape right now is there's this big upheaval in design around what production design really means. And if that's going to stick around, you have code like still leading the way with a lot of these ideas about systems and concepts, but also really struggling to integrate design into their process. And then you have this upheaval in the industry around design technology and design ops. And so there's a few of these companies that have these fledgling ideas, either they have a design ops team or design ops department, maybe they've reorganized some part of the company around design technology, but there's not usually like an executive owner of this thing yet. 
And so this is commonly fitting in like a CMO bucket. Sometimes it's fitting in like a CPO bucket. And what we're really trying to understand is like, where does this land long term? Because we really do feel like this is something that institutes a reorg inside of organizations. And that reorg looks like a team dedicated to the systems that create product. Now, it sounds like that should live under product, right? When you hear that, you're like, well, why isn't that the CPO's job? It's because in in enterprise software, we've taken product and we've reduced it down to metrics, where product is more about what are the metrics on what you're building instead of like, what is the actual thing you're building? We've been so focused on this sort of idea of, you know, how much production do we have that that has become the value that we think that product generates instead of this value that is related to how efficient or how practical the implementation of our product is. So I guess that's all to say, this is all in a big sense of upheaval. And I actually even have a problem with the word design systems because it's not actually owned by design. It's co-owned by design and engineering and it makes product look awesome. And so there is some sort of like product ops framework here, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what this category is going to look like in a couple of years. And it's early enough that we get to have these like wonderfully formative conversations about what that means. Nice. And when you're having those conversations, are you speaking with analyst firms to gather their input? Or what are your you know, initial steps that you're taking in terms of category creation and category design? Yeah, so, you know, we talk to all the usual suspects and the analyst crew about this sort of stuff. And most of them have slapped the moniker design systems on it for better or for worse. I think they, there's conferences and stuff like that related to design systems now. So there is traction in that sort of like category game, mm-hmm. if you will. But there's still this undefined idea. You know, nobody's written the Agile Manifesto for design systems. If we can, I think Martin Fowler wrote that. That was all about this idea of like, hey, here's what this means when we talk about this. Or or Ethan Marcotte and responsive web design. Here's what this means when we talk about that. Nobody's really been able to make that sort of thing happen in design systems and really get it to stick. And Mm -hmm. so like, that's what I'm working on right now, actually, is this idea of like this thesis of what is a design system definitively as not just like a single line entry in in a blog post, but like, let's flesh it out. What does this actually mean? What does this stuff do? And what should we really call it? See if that can stick. So would it essentially be redefining what design system means with your unique point of view and vision and then putting a new label on it? Or would it just be design system 2.0? Yeah, it's really hard to say, right? Because we have this sort of evolution of tooling that's happened. I mean, this isn't a totally new concept. Brad Frost wrote Atomic Design, gosh, like 2014, something like that. Maybe even earlier than that. I I don't remember. And sorry, Brad, if you're listening to this, I wish I could remember the date you wrote that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, that was sort of the start of this all, right? Like we all kind of figured out that like, you know, you take small atomic design elements and you gather them together and that's how you build up these big bits of UI and experience and ultimately create pages. But early tools in that industry were things like Pattern Lab and Storybook, even some early stuff in Sketch with Abstract and you know what Figma has done. And a lot of these things were like these early tooling in design systems, maybe even some later tooling there, but they were very single discipline focused. Like Figma works great for designers. And, you know, I can hear Dylan, it's the CEO of Figma in my ear saying like, yeah, well, you know, a third of our customers are engineers. Well, only because they have to be. Like, there's not really a ton of engineering value out of the design system you can create in Figma. Likewise, there's not a lot of design value out of the design system you create, which is really a component library and storybook. And so you have these systems that were very single discipline focused. And then the industry got together and said, like, well, like, what if we embedded these inside of other systems? And so you got things like Envision DSM and Zero Height 
and a bunch of these other groups out there that started to create what amount to CMS platforms that then allow you to embed design and code into the same place. And, and now you're getting somewhere, right? You have something that has value, that has everything in one place. It's this idea of like this single source of truth. Well, the problem that you have with that is there's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of glue that you have to work on to maintain all those different things. And in a SaaS world, you don't really want to tell a customer like, yeah, okay, buy our product, but also use these four other products. And also you have to maintain them separately. And if one of them makes major version bump, you have to wait for us to get on board to be able to actually like make that work with our software. again. And so now you're at the stage where you have all in one platforms like us. And there's a few other folks out there that are doing similar things. And the intent of that is, is to be the infrastructure for your entire systems-based approach to design and develop. Got it. And for you then, when Figma got acquired, was that a big deal? Was that relevant? Do you think that helped your valuation? Or is that totally different from the market segment that you're operating within? Massively big deal. Like huge, huge, huge deal. And the reason why is because of two things. One, frankly, I was always a little bit scared that Figma was going to do this. You know, they bought a company called Visly a few years ago. Visly is all about like design to code flows. They sort of disappeared after that, even though I know a bunch of those people still work there. And then you also had their design system, right? And look, I get it, right? Like Figma's idea is they're incentivized to get more people using Figma. But more people inside a design tool isn't the answer because users don't consume Figma files. Users consume code. It shows up as HTML and CSS in a web browser. It shows up as rendered iOS or Android apps. It doesn't show up as Figma files. And so you're not working in the medium you're destined for if you're building a bunch of stuff in Figma. And Figma is fundamentally a representation of intent, not reality. The design intent is great. We need that. We need tools like Figma. We need to be able to take nothing and make it into something. But ultimately, when it comes to like what we should be working with to build our apps, the answer is code. And this is a big thing for Knapsack is what we want to do is we don't want to take design from Figma and transform it into, say, like React or something like that. Mm-hmm. That is a long way from being something that's a viable enterprise production ready solution. What we want to do is we want to make it so that designers can work with code without actually having to know how the code is built or have to write the code themselves and make it so that working with code feels just like working with a design tool. Interesting. And one question that I have to ask, or I'm you know, curious on your thoughts, how do you view this you know, monopoly that Adobe seems to be forming in the industry? You know, there's obviously all this talk around Amazon having a monopoly and Facebook, but it seems like you know, the FTC is kind of overlooking in the enterprise space these monopolies that are being formed. Do you have an opinion there? Yeah, I mean, like the DOJ is going to look at this deal. I mean, ultimately, like what this is like 2% of Adobe's revenue or something like that. I don't exactly remember what the number is, right? But it's something like a big deal like this that starts to get attention that design actually really matters. And so you're going to see a lot of companies like entering this market as a result. And so I think that the interesting thing is, is they're definitely inviting competition with this play Mm -hmm. to reinvent design tools. I mean, that's what Figma did, right? Like it was basically like, Sketch, Adobe, and Envision. And now Envision is more or less exited the design tool market. Figma has been acquired by Adobe. You still have Sketch that's out there. But ultimately, there's somebody that's going to create that next like disruptive tool. Mm-hmm. One other thing on that, like you're already seeing a ton of people in venture capital like flocking towards this, right? I mean, 
my number of cold emails from VCs quintupled after this announcement. And so like, literally, you got a bunch of like associates at VC firms sitting there like typing into Google, like design startups, right? Because this is now just injected so much fuel into this market that people are looking to have a design play in venture now. Is it called design tech? Does it have its own like ecosystem that's being formed now? Yeah, I mean, I hope so, right? Like, I I hope that there is something that differentiates us from dev tools or enterprise SaaS. Those are two really frustrating buckets. (laughs) I can imagine. And when it comes to adoption, where are you seeing the most adoption right now? What size business, you know, what vertical, anything that you can share there? Yeah, so there's kind of two lines that it lines up around, right? You have mid-stage, late-stage startups that are smaller deals, but it's because those companies are looking to acquire somebody for the first time, or they think really progressively about the role of design and engineering inside of their organizations. And so they want to have that like kind of latest, greatest tool to build from. And then there's the larger legacy enterprise that probably wasn't born digital, that is trying to figure out how to scale and manage in an ever-increasing amount of customer demand for digital experiences. If you were a large legacy enterprise a decade ago, you had maybe, you know, a couple of dozen apps that were out there in the world, like between web apps and native apps. And maybe you had a sustainability website or something like that. And maybe you had like a partner's website or maybe an investor's website. Now, most big organizations that we work with have hundreds, so many that they can't even count them all or keep track of them all. And it's largely driven by this just ever-increasing amount of consumer demand for new digital experiences. COVID accelerated this. There was a whole bunch of other factors in play that really made it so lots of these companies that worked in a physical space had to move online. And that accelerated everybody's digital transformation plan. And these large legacy enterprises, their options are, on the one hand, hire 2,000 designers and let's all work really inefficiently and just throw bodies at the problem or start to really think about systems that help them scale. And we've stepped in in a really timely way to take those large companies and help them scale with systems. And if you divide those buckets up, what percentage of the customer base today is you know, more startup-y compared with the enterprise? Well, it's funny, right? It's the typical like SaaS problem, right? Where you know we have maybe like 20% of those customers in that big enterprise bracket, but they're responsible for the bulk of our revenue. It's probably not quite that many. It's more like 30%, but some amount of that, that trade-off, right? Where they're a smaller proportion of the overall customer base, but they're a huge proportion of the revenue. And what was it like getting that first enterprise deal? A lot of the founders that I talked to on the show, they said that's, you know, obviously the hard part is just getting one of those logos. Like, do you remember landing that logo? And, and what was that journey like? Yeah, it's interesting, right? We were an agency before we were a product company. And so we had an interesting origin story there. We were a pretty fast-growing agency. We founded our agency and pretty much immediately landed like Unilever as a customer. And then pretty much immediately after that, got a bunch of big hospitals and a bunch of big financial institutions. And so we were never really starved to work as an agency until all of a sudden COVID hit. And what happened is we went from all of this agency work being on our plate to it vanishing. I think our projected revenues went back down by like 70% or something ridiculous like that. It was, it was a bloodbath. And so all of a sudden, you know, in an agency life, you can't have people on the bench and everybody was on the bench. And so we got a PPP loan and we basically said like, all right, everybody keep working, build tools, build tools that make your job easier. And out of that was what was ultimately the early version of Knapsack. And then, you know, six months later, when the agency work started coming back, kind of ended the summer of 2020, 
we all sat down as a leadership team and we're like, well, we've actually built something here that's kind of interesting. And we think this market is really ripe for SaaS software to come in and really help it. And so what if we became a product company? And so we made that transition and we were able to keep two pretty substantial enterprise customers in that services to product software transition that we continue to work with to this day. And so there wasn't ever really that moment where we had that big land. I think that there was, you know, our first customer that we had no relationship to as an agency that we landed. And that was very exciting. And what was that like for you as a founder as you were making that decision to go from a service business to a product business? Because I feel like those are two very different businesses and you have probably two very different you know, approaches that you have to take when it comes to building. And then, of course, you know, the long-term business that you have there. What was that like as you were making that decision? Terrifying. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you're like, oh, we have reasonably stable business, right? Like we had our good months, and our bad months. But overall, Evan and I had more or less settled on building a, a lifestyle business. And, and there was a third partner at that point too, by the name of Nam. And ultimately, in that process, we lost Nam as a co-founder, which was really difficult, difficult personally and professionally. We ended up losing the vast majority of our staff. I totally thought we would have staff that transitioned with us. Turns out that was really tough to pull off. And we put at risk something that was working for something that was broadly unknown. Oh, and by the way, we had no money in the bank with which to fund the business between the time we made that decision and the uh, the time that we actually needed to start to pay people. And so I basically immediately, after doing the reincorporation and setting up the right legal structure, went out to go raise money and did that in about four months. Started raising money in late September of 2020. And it was January 6th that we were able to secure the funding from our investors. Wow. And was that all done remotely or were you meeting in person? 100% remote. And also, man, oh man, like I had a brand new baby. (laughs) My, My youngest was born in August. And so literally like my infant child was with me on a lot of, of VC calls. It's funny. I had one of my investors, Micah at, at Founder Collective. He's like, you're just doing this to raise my serotonin levels. He's like, that's a damn cute baby. (laughs) <laughs> and he ended up investing in us. So so I guess it worked out. But it was it was a wild time. It could not have been more risky than what we did at that moment. But it's what we really believed we wanted to do. And do you view it? Does it hurt you at all that you're in Portland instead of being in Silicon Valley or New York City? Or do you view that as you know an advantage? Uh, it's a mixed bag. Venture here is tough. Like, I got to be honest. I mean, it's been really hard to raise from the community here. And I tried real hard. I mean, I'm as Pacific Northwest as it gets, right? I'm dyed in the wool Oregonian. And the closest money I was able to get to home was Seattle. And even then, not a ton of my cap table is is Pacific Northwest based. The advantage of COVID was I could raise in New York and San Francisco without having to necessarily move there. You know, Portland has its advantages. I think that there's a lot of creative talent here that is incredible. It's still a little cheaper, even though it's it's less of a gap than it used to be. But it's hard to raise money in an environment like this. And it's also hard to have startup peers in an environment like this. And so I end up spending a lot of time on Zoom and on an airplane, leaving my home to go make this business go. And why do you think that is? Why is it difficult to raise from the New Portland venture community? Or is it just so small that there's just not enough capital there to go around? 
I think it's a bit of both. I mean, the funds that are set up here are notoriously pretty risk adverse. The process that you run through here for a very small check is akin to what you would run through for a very big check in in San Francisco or New York. And so it's really challenging when you're subjected to a pretty high level of scrutiny for what amounts to not a ton of money. And moreover, I think that you know there are good venture people here. There are people with a will to do those sorts of things. But the institutional sort of mechanics aren't really set up that well. And so there's not all that many people that are making like awesome venture scale bets very frequently. And those that do tend to be very selective and usually not the first check or the second check in a company. Makes a lot of sense. Last couple of questions here for you. As you've probably learned through this whole experience, you know, bringing a product to market isn't easy. What's the number one biggest challenge you faced and how'd you overcome that challenge? Oof. I'd say going from founder-led sales to having other people sell the product. I mean, as, as the founder, you know, you're never going to find somebody that is immediately able to sell the product better than you. And in fact, it takes years probably before somebody's going to be able to sell the product better than you if they ever get there. And so that transition from I'm selling all these deals myself to I'm empowering other people to sell these deals to we have a team of people selling these deals. It's a really hard process. And it's really fraught because things that are intuitive and innate to you as a founder, especially if you have a a selling background like I do, they don't always translate to other people. And none of those systems to make that communication flow or that structure work really, you know, exist. We had like a, you know, two HubSpot user license for forever. And now we've got like seven, right? And so trying to figure out how to make that dynamic even work and get the data you need to run that part of the business is extremely hard. And I think that there's a lot of the organization that shifts as well that I wasn't quite ready for personally. You know, I'd run a sales team before. And so I knew how to set up a lot of the mechanics of it. I wasn't prepared for how that would change the way that I look at leadership and the way that I function within the leadership team. Do you miss doing sales now that you're no longer founder-led? I mean, I still do some. It's never totally goes away, I don't think, if you're you're the CEO of a company. Like, you know, you need to get to know your customers. You need to see what's happening. You need to be involved in deals. I like not being involved in every part of every deal. That is actually like something that's a bit freeing. Do I miss the highs of selling a big account? Hell yeah, man. I mean, there's no better time in your life than when you just closed a big deal. But it can also be really crushing when you do that like, you know, 30th qual call that the customer goes to you. And I don't miss that. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Last question here for you. If we zoom out five years, what's the vision for the company? So we're trying really hard to build the best design system platform that's out there. And the things that are on sort of our radar is a lot that has to do with data. And so one of the hard parts with design systems and just generally product technology is this idea that the best data that we can get is I can compare one page to another page. And that's really inadequate to understand how people should be making design decisions about their products. The eternal debate of like, should my button have square corners or round corners, right? It's a dumb debate to have because fundamentally, you can't measure who's right in that debate until you start to get into the idea of being able to do like multivariate stuff. And so the power of Knapsack is because we understand all the possible permutations and variations of your UI, we can iterate through those things and we can do it programmatically. And so we can answer questions like across dozens or hundreds of products, what actually performs best and get that data back into Knapsack 
to help people make better decisions about design. And I think that if you're looking five years out, maybe a little on the edge of that five years, you start to think about how you automate a lot of that. You start to say like, well, okay, you know, if I know that the rounded corners on my button perform 6% better than square corners, why is anybody even making that decision? Why wouldn't the robot just say, yeah, we're using rounded corners. So here's your radius, go. That probably doesn't start there. That probably starts with things like recommendations, like, hey, you know, I see you're building a button. Maybe consider one of these five. And you have some like clippy-esque thing in the corner that's kind of annoying that tells you like what you should be doing with your designs. But I think ultimately where this is headed is much more towards the generative space mm-hmm. where you start to look at all of this data about how products perform in market and all the different variables that go into that performance. And you start to get a lot of interesting data that you can automate around experiences. Nice. Amazing. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, you know, go ahead and and take a look on Twitter for as long as that lasts at Chris Strahl. (laughs) You can check out uh, the Design Systems Podcast. I'm over there or hit me up at knapsack.cloud. Amazing. Chris, thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Learned a lot from you and this is a really exciting vision. So let's keep in touch. Thanks, Brett. Cheers.